We're going to continue into Daniel chapter 8 this morning. Um, There are other things in Daniel chapter 7 that we need to return to later on, but for now, it's important that we keep following the flow of the book of Daniel. So a little bit of a longer sermon this morning, just because we need to overview all of Daniel chapter 8. It's, it's, one, it's one section. You can't break it up. Uh, so look with me there at the top of your handout at the brief review here of what the flow is in Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, the Babylonian captivity. So as a teenager, Daniel is taken to Babylon where he and his friends are educated with a very pagan godless education, but God gives them courage to stand and he also gives them remarkable insight And so then in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of a statue, which Daniel is the only person who is able to interpret it. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar builds an idolatrous statue, and God gives to Daniel's friends great courage, even facing a fiery furnace because of their faithfulness to God. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream, which only Daniel can explain, and is humbled as a beast until he learns that God reigns over all the kings and kingdoms. Chapter 5, the last king of Babylon, Belshazzar, has a blasphemous party. Daniel is the only one who can read the handwriting on the wall that God sends, and then Babylon is defeated. Chapter 6, now we're in the time of the Persian Empire, Daniel has to stand once again with great courage when there is the decree against prayer and he faces the lion's den from which God miraculously delivers him. Then for the last three sermons, we were in chapter 7, which starts the section of the book that is full of Daniel's visions. And chapter 7 is a vision of four kingdoms leading up to a little horn, a ruler, a terrible ruler, but then the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, the Kingdom of God. So today, chapter 8, is another vision of two kingdoms and one terrifying politician. And I know that politician isn't quite the right word for an ancient emperor, but um, it helps us bridge, bridge the gap to rulers today. So there's more about this terrifying politician later in the book, but we will start to meet him today. And um, so on your handout, just note that uh, this blank space is just for you to use while we work through Daniel 8. We won't get to the inside until much later on, so just stay on the front for now. Let's pause for a word of prayer and then start into chapter 8, verse 1. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray to you as the author of the Word, which makes it not just ink on a page, but the living words of the living God. And so we come with a desire for our hearts to be humble, soft, teachable, and very attentive to what you say in your word. And we come with hope and confidence that your spirit is here using the word to accomplish what you're doing in our hearts. And again, we want to be yielded to what you're doing. Help us to hear your words and respond with faith and obedience. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 8, verse 1 gives us the timing of the chapter. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. 
So his vision in chapter 7 came in the first year of Belshazzar. This is the third year of Belshazzar now. Uh, Remember that Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon before it fell to the Medo-Persian Empire of Cyrus. So as Daniel receives this vision here, the clock is ticking even further on the Babylonian Empire. And as it turns out, this next vision is about the next two empires that will follow, uh, replace Babylon. And then uh, verse 2 gives us the location of what Daniel saw in this vision. Verse 2, and I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Susa was a city about 200 miles east of where Daniel was in Babylon. And um, the Ulai Canal was a well-known connection between rivers by that city. And from that spot, you could kind of look across the city. And so, not in physical reality probably, but in the vision, Daniel saw himself out there in Susa. Susa had once been a very great city. By the time of Daniel, it was not an important city. But it was soon going to become a very great city again because the Persians would make it a, uh, a, a place of royal palaces and also a regional capital. So maybe the vision set in Susa because uh, the rise and fall of the Persian Empire is going to be part of the point of chapter 8. I don't know for sure. Now in verse 3, Daniel's God-given vision begins. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Now, look down at verse 20 for a moment. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So God tells us that the ram pictures the Medo-Persian Empire, which was the next empire after Babylon. And it was an unusual empire because it was a merging together of the Medes who had more power initially and then the Persians who rose to dominate the empire. And so that's why in verse 3, the ram has one horn that is larger at first, and then another horn that surpasses it. Now, if you look back up to verse 4, it describes the conquests of the Persian empire, charging around, no beast can stand before him. He did as he pleased and became great. Under Cyrus the Great, this became the largest empire the world had ever seen up to that point. But Persia was just a brief chapter in God's plans. And so, verse 5, we move right on past them. Verse 5, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. So if you look again back down in the chapter to verse 21, verse 21 says, and the goat is the king of Greece 
and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. So this must be Alexander the Great, the first king when Greece became an empire. They had existed as a, as a people, in a sense, as a nation with their own ruler, but he was the first king as when they became an empire. And so this is pictured as a he is he is pictured as a single great horn between the eyes of the goat. And verse five says, "He came from the west without touching the ground." And the picture there. Remember, this is a vision. It's figurative, right? The picture there is like your cartoon character whose legs are moving so fast that it looks like they're flying. And that's what we're seeing here. What the Persians had conquered in several decades, Alexander the Great conquered in three years. Astonishing speed. A a relatively very small army, 30 or 40,000 men. It was incredible. Verse 6, he came to the ram with the two horns, so that's Persia, remember, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him. Pause there for just a second. The Persians had troubled the Greeks for many years, and the Greek rage against the Persians had just grown and grown and grown. And Alexander was finally the one who was able to do something about it. So verse 7, I saw him, Alexander, come close to the ram, the Persian Empire, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So the Persian Empire very swiftly fell to Alexander and the Greeks. Verse 8, then the goat became exceedingly great. And you probably already know about the incredible influence of Alexander the Great and how Greek culture spread throughout the known world continues to impact us today. Science, history, philosophy, politics, libraries, language. It was an amazing empire. Verse 8, then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. I wish we could just hear that. I don't know exactly what it sounds like, but growing up in the Intermountain West, you learn what it sounds like when elk or bison or mountain goats when those rams run into each other with those horns, and that, that sh- sound can fill a whole valley. So imagine this goat with this huge horn, and the horn is suddenly like snapped off after that horn just took out the entire Persian empire. At the peak of his power, Alexander the Great just suddenly died. Kind of ironically, he died in Babylon, actually. At the age of 33, um, he may have just pushed himself way too hard, or it's, they also think he may have drunk himself to death, since we know he had been drinking very heavily. Did you see the headline this week? One out of every five deaths in the U.S. of people ages 20 to 49 is from excess drinking. 20%. So he was 33 and may have drunk himself to death. The powerful horn was snapped off, 
And Alexander the Great was also just a brief chapter in God's big story. And so the end of verse 8 continues. And instead of it, instead of that one great horn, instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So when Alexander died, there was great turmoil, including the execution of his wife and at least one of his sons. And over the next decades, it was a mess. But ultimately, the power of the Greek Empire ended up in the hands of four rulers in four regions who are represented in verse 8 by four horns. Then, verse 9, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. So we know that horns in these visions represent rulers, kings, or kings, yeah. And a little horn would represent a ruler who starts out small or arises unexpectedly. And so it will become clear that the little horn here in verse 9 is Antiochus IV, who ruled the, uh, we could call it the Syrian part of the Greek Empire from 175 to 164 BC. I put his name there on the front of your handout, Antiochus IV. So, quick review. Daniel saw the Persian Empire, pictured as a ram. The Greek Empire, pictured as a goat. The the goat had one big horn, Alexander the Great, who came flying across from the west and conquered the Persians with incredible speed. And then the horn in the vision snaps off, picturing Alexander's sudden death at the age of 33. And then the four parts of the divided Greek kingdom arose, and from one of those came a little horn. So verse 9 again, out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Antiochus IV grew to rule a huge area that stretched from Turkey all the way to Iran. It was a vast and very tumultuous empire, And Judea was right on the edge of it, right on the southwest corner of of his region. It was his father, Antiochus III, who had first kind of gotten Judea under Syrian control. Um, And he tried to start pushing Greek culture on the Jews, um, but it did not go well, and he, he backed off. But Antiochus IV decided that the only way he was gonna unify from Turkey to Iran, was to impose Greek culture on everyone. And that included getting the various religions of his empire to to set aside their distinctiveness and unify together under the Greek gods and the Greek worldview. Um, What you've got here is very, I mean, in some ways very different, but in some ways very similar to what you have in in a nation like China today, where the government cannot allow true religious diversity because it's too much of a threat to their power. That's exactly what Antiochus was thinking. And so that worked in some places, but when he tried to do that in Judea, he found that the Jews were not so easy to influence. Now, there were some Jews who went along with it and did compromise, but many did not. And that really made Antiochus mad. They obviously were more loyal to their God than they were to him, and that could not be tolerated. So on his way back from some battles in Egypt, where he was fighting another part of the Greek empire, he uh, 
stopped by in Jerusalem and just stole all kinds of stuff from, from the temple, kind of like Nebuchadnezzar had done long before. Uh, but that did nothing to change the Jewish people's faith, and it did nothing to satisfy his anger at the Jewish people. And so he came again two years later with a huge army and brutally attacked Jerusalem. I'll just read to you from the Jewish records of this in 1 Maccabees 1. Antiochus suddenly fell upon the city, dealt it a severe blow, and destroyed many people of Israel. He plundered the city, burned it with fire, and tore down its houses and its surrounding walls, and they took captive the women and children and seized the cattle. But that initial assault was just the beginning, because then he put out an edict forbidding the Jews from offering any of their regular offerings and sacrifices. He ordered them to profane the Sabbath. He ordered them to stop their feasts. He ordered them to make idols and build altars for idols. He ordered them to sacrifice pigs. He forbade circumcision. And the edict concluded Whoever does not obey the command of the king, those commands, shall die. Death penalty for not doing things like sacrificing pigs. And if that was not enough, he brutally murdered babies who were circumcised, like publicly brutally murdered them, then banned the reading of the law of Moses and ordered all copies of the Jewish law to be burned. Then, can you believe there's still a then? Then, finally, he built his own altar on top of the altar in the temple and offered sacrifices to the Greek god Zeus right there in the Jewish temple, essentially rededicating the Jewish temple to the Greek gods. It was an astonishing assault on the Jewish people and their faith. Now, you probably know some of the story. It's actually a very complicated story, but in the years that followed, some of the Jewish people rose up against Antiochus IV. It's complicated because in the process they had to rise up against each other since some had, had uh, compromised with the Greeks. But in, by 164 BC, they recaptured Jerusalem, reappointed priests, and rededicated the temple. And that's celebrated still today as Hanukkah, which means dedication. Shortly after that, Antiochus IV in a way that's eerily similar to Alexander the Great, Antiochus IV died a totally unexpected death on his own, not killed by an enemy army, not assassinated or anything. And actually, it seems like he was killed by his own grief and remorse. It's really odd to read about it. And so by 164, he was, he was dead and gone. Okay, so I've given you a brief overview of Antiochus IV. Now let's go back to verse 9. Out of one of them, so remember, that's one part of the Greek Empire, out of the Syrian part of the divided Greek Empire, came a little horn, a ruler, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land which is certainly, we'll see later in the book of Daniel, the glorious land is the land of Judea. 
So, so that verse is describing Antiochus IV ruling this vast kingdom, then focusing all of his wrath on the glorious land and trying to destroy the Jewish faith. Now, what happens next in Daniel's vision, remember this is all a vision, what happens next is that God shows to Daniel a figurative picture of what Antiochus's assault on Jerusalem was like, or a, a figurative picture of what was spiritually going on. Verse 10 says, it, which is the horn, Antiochus IV, it grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. So the phrase host of heaven would normally refer to the stars. Here it says some of the host and some of the stars. We know that later in Daniel, stars can picture the people of God or the angels of God. Uh, so what's going on here? Antiochus didn't literally go fight in heaven. He was a human being on earth. But in the vision, the point is, that when Antiochus decided he was going to assault the glorious land, when he decided he was going to attack God's people, he was taking on heaven itself. Heaven's hosts, heaven's angels. You take on God's people and you take on God's angels and you take on God himself. It's truly a cosmic spiritual battle when you attack the people of God. That's what verse 10 is telling us. Verse 11 it, the horn, Antiochus IV, became great, even as great as the prince of the host. I think it's helpful to translate that word prince as commander, because it doesn't mean prince in like the British royalty sense. It, it, it's not quite the meaning of this word. This is the commander of the host or the armies of God, the commander of God's people, the commander of God's angels. Who's that? It's God. So verse 11 says, it became great even in the, in the vision, it looked like this horn was as great as the commander of the host, the commander of the armies of God. It looked like he was defeating God. And that's what the rest of verse 11 describes. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him from the commander of the host, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. So in the vision, it looked like this horn came to God's temple and took away God's sacrifices and overthrew God's sanctuary in a way that sure looked like he was defeating God. So again, quick review, because it's just so easy to get disoriented in the middle of this. It's happened to me so many times. So remember what we've got. We've got Persia, then Greece, then Alexander the Great, that one big horn. Then it's snapped off, and you get four horns, four parts of the Greek Empire. From one of those parts arises Antiochus IV, who rule, rules a, a huge area, but focuses attention on Judea. And in attacking the people of God, he's actually attacking God himself, and it looks like he's even winning. And this happened in the 160s BC, right? Now, 
to verse 12, a very, very difficult verse, difficult partly because it's just really hard to translate. The ESV says, and a host will be given over to it. That's the horn, Antiochus. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Let's go one phrase at a time. A host will be given over to it. That means that it will seem like Antiochus is defeating God's people. Then it says, together with the regular burnt offering, that means that he successfully stopped the regular temple sacrifices. And then the next phrase is, because of transgression. Um, Maybe that's talking about his transgression. I think it may be talking about Israel's sin that resulted in this discipline from God. And then the next phrase, and it will throw truth to the ground. Remember Antiochus forbade the law of Moses and burned the law of Moses. And then finally, verse 12 says, and it will act and prosper. Antiochus seemed to win against God and God's people. This is all really terrible. And so what happens next is really fascinating. Remember, it's a vision, right? What Daniel sees next in the vision is two angels who are talking about this. And what they're wondering is how long is God going to let this go on? The angels are seeing how horrible this is. Verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, so now one of them speaks to Daniel and tells him, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So the answer was that God had fixed an exact amount of days that this would be allowed to go on, and then it would end. Now, there is a huge amount of discussion about that 2300 number. One of the questions is, does it mean 2000? Well, some people have taken it to mean 2300 years. That's where you've gotten even some really wacky modern ideas about the second coming of Jesus. Um, But it's days. But there's a question about whether it's 2,300 days or, see, it says 2,300 evenings and mornings. If that's referring to the two sacrifices every day that were taken away, it could be 1,150 days. We don't know. If anybody tells you they know, they don't know. (laughs) Okay? We know what, that the end date was probably the 25th day of the ninth month of 164 B.C., the day when they dedicated the te- rededicated the temple. So from that date, we can go back. And if we go back 1,150 days, we're around the time when he desecrated the temple. So that works. If we go back 2,300 days, we're back around the time when he first started troubling Jerusalem. So that works. Bottom line, we don't know exactly when the 2,300 days or 1,500 days start, but we know that the point is God had the exact amount of time fixed. And when God was ready for it to be done, it was done. And Antiochus and the Jews were able to drive him out, and Antiochus died. 
So that concludes the vision. And as you can see, it ends up, though it talks about Persia and and Alexander the Great and so forth, it ends up focusing on this one terrifying politician, a terrifying politician from real history, from the 160s BC, Antiochus IV. But remember, from Daniel's perspective, this was not a person from history. This was a person who would not exist for more than 350 years. And this is why unbelievers who don't, critical scholars of the Bible, have tried so hard to prove, and they cannot prove, that Daniel was actually written during the time of Antiochus. Because if Daniel was written by Daniel, then this is incredible predictive prophecy. God foretold the rise and fall of the Persian Empire the rise and fall of Alexander the Great, and Antiochus IV's obsession with Judah. God foretold all of it centuries before it happened. All right, now verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. By the way, Gabriel is one of only two named angels in the Bible, right? And this is the first named angel in the Old Testament. So he came near where I stood, verse 17. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Now, most basically... That just means, Daniel, these things aren't going to happen in your lifetime. These things are going to come later. They're part of the end of God's plans. Verse 18, And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So that's all pretty familiar to us, hopefully. Persia, then Greece, and Alexander, then four rulers. Now in verse 23, the focus turns again to this one terrifying ruler. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. So bold face, that means that Antiochus would be hard-hearted, cruel, just brazen, heartless, really. And then understands riddles. Uh, it's a tough phrase to translate because it's not like, don't picture Antiochus like doing Sudoku in his room. The point is that he is a political mastermind who could look at the landscape and know exactly what to do for his own power. He could solve the riddles of politics and power with incredible skill. Verse 24, his power shall be great but not by his own power. Somebody else is behind him. 
You could say God, of course, ultimately, in the sovereign sense. There's another sense in which he's satanically empowered to attack the people of God. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. Verse 24 continues, And he shall cause fearful destruction. We already talked about that. And shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Verse 25, By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. Meaning he seems to deceive and lull people into thinking they're safe. And then suddenly he turns against them. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, the commander of commanders, God himself. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Again, he was driven out of Jerusalem and died a sudden death, not killed by anybody else. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. In other words, these things are going to happen and they're going to happen in 2,300 evenings and mornings. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Probably not seal up in the sense of keep it secret, but seal up in the sense of keep it secure, because future generations are going to need to hear this. Future generations of Jews are going to need this vision to strengthen their hearts when Antiochus IV sets his gun sights on the glorious land. And we need this vision too. God preserved it for us. Seal up the vision for those Californians in 2022. Verse 27, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel rose and went about the king's business. You know, there are some tragic stories of people who, who decided that they knew when Jesus was going to come again and they made decisions about their family and their finances that were horrible because they were so sure Jesus was coming so it didn't matter. Um, Daniel was wise enough to not do that. Even though he was sick at what he was being told about what the future held, he got up and got back to work <laughs> and got going knowing that it was coming sometime in the future. But he was sick and he was confused and struggling to understand it all. And what he didn't know was that this wasn't the last of his visions. There were actually more to come. Hey, that's the last verse of Daniel 8. We just made it all the way through. One of the more complicated chapters in all of Bible prophecy. I hope I've given us at least somewhat a manageable overview of a complicated chapter. So now, let's go to the inside of your handout and spend just the rest of our time trying to get a little bit of perspective about how this fits into Bible prophecy as a whole and what it means for us. And I, I just wrote out a bunch of this in your handout um, to make it easy to keep track of and, and to, to save maybe if it's useful. So the, the big question in Daniel chapter 8, and it's really, in some ways, it's kind of like the big question in the book of Daniel, uh, is Antiochus IV the same person as the terrifying politician in the fourth kingdom in Daniel 7. Do you remember that guy back in chapter 7 
this really boastful little horn who makes war with the saints and prevails against them. There was a terrible ruler in chapter 7 too. And and our first thought would be, it's got to be the same person because both guys are called little horns. Chapter 7, verse 8, and chapter 8, verse 9. And they're both powerful and cunning and arrogant and attacked, and they're attacking the people of God. So first glance, it's got to be the same person. But then, but, but first of all, the fact that they're both called a little horn doesn't mean it's the same person. Remember, little horn is just a visionary way of picturing a ruler who starts small. And so you can have more than one little horn. It's not like a title or a name or something like that. It's just a, it's a, it's a picture. And so I think there are a couple of reasons why we can be pretty certain it's not the same person. And, and admittedly, there are some Christians who disagree about this. Um, I think it's not the same person. First of all, because they're not in the same kingdom. And if we get into the details about that right now, it's going to get too confusing. But if you read chapter 7 and look at the kingdom setting from which that little horn arises, and then look at chapter 8 and the kingdom setting from which that little horn arises, it sure doesn't sound like the same kingdom. Two different kingdoms. And then secondly, because Jesus and the kingdom of God did not come in conjunction with the fall of Antiochus IV. Okay, so in chapter 7, when the little horn is defeated, the Son of Man is crowned king and the kingdom of God comes from the Ancient of Days. But that's not what happened with the little horn in chapter 8. Antiochus IV was defeated and he died in 164 BC. And this is 200 years before Jesus died and rose again. Jesus wasn't the stone that crushed Antiochus and brought an end to his kingdom and brought in the kingdom of God after Antiochus. So for those two big reasons, um, these two rulers in chapter 7 and chapter 8 aren't the same ruler. Chapter 7, there's a little horn in the fourth kingdom right before the kingdom of God comes through Jesus. In chapter 8, there's a little horn in the third kingdom of Greece, and it's not right before the kingdom of God comes through Jesus. Two little horns, two different people. So if you read there on your notes, this is, I think, really central to understanding what's going on in Daniel. On a timeline, the little horn of chapter 8, that's Antiochus in the 160s, apparently comes before the little horn of chapter 7, who was overthrown by the coming of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom of God. It probably doesn't, that probably seems just obscure, not very important right now, but it will be important later. Um, Okay, that leads us then to the next question. If the terrifying politician of Daniel 8 is not history's final terrifying politician, the one in Daniel 7, then why are we talking about him? Why did God spend so much time telling us about this somewhat obscure Greek ruler in the 160s BC. And he's going to come up later. We're going to see another big section about him in Daniel chapter 11. Why is God telling us so much about Antiochus IV? Three guesses. Number one, because the Jewish people would have to face him in their most horrific persecution yet. 
The Jews had been through many hard things, but even people like Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar had not tried the kind of things that Antiochus IV tried. It was, I mean, like, for example, Herod, I mean, Pharaoh tries to get the Jewish midwives to kill Jewish babies. Antiochus just takes them and throws them off the walls in Jerusalem with everybody watching. And so remember that the vision of Daniel 8 was given by God nearly 400 years before Antiochus came. This was to help prepare God's people for what was coming. And this is a pattern that Jesus followed also because there are, I think, four different times in the Gospels when Jesus said to his disciples, I'm telling you this in advance so that I'm, I'm rewording, I'm summarizing the four things. I'm telling you this in advance so that when these things happen, you'll stay strong in your faith. And so that's a first reason why God told them about this ruler. Secondly, because Antiochus IV is the closest thing history has ever seen to what the terrifying final fourth kingdom ruler will be like. There have been many evil rulers, and there will, and there still are today, and there will be more. But if you want to find one ruler in history who most parallels what the final evil ruler will be look like, will look like, look to the 160s BC and look at Antiochus IV. How do we know that? How can I make that claim? Because in the New Testament, Jesus and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John all take the language of Antiochus IV and apply it to the final evil ruler. That, and so Antiochus is the closest thing history has ever seen to what the terrifying final fourth kingdom ruler will be like. And if, if you want to know more about that, come to Bible study next Sunday, and we'll talk about it more. But the point for today is, it's not just a random coincidence. God sovereignly orchestrated that. Think of it like God talking to Antiochus IV. And God says to him, you think you're really hot stuff. You are very impressed with your power and your conquests. You actually think that you're defeating me because I'm letting you overrun my temple and overrun my people. But in truth, Antiochus, I am raising you up so that for thousands of years to come, my people can look at your story and it will help them prepare for the terrifying rulers they face. Long after you're dead and gone, God's people are going to keep standing firm in their faith like they did against you in the 160s. And they're going to keep standing firm in their faith. Here's the cool part partly because of you. Because they're going to keep talking about your story because God's going to record it. So Antiochus, you're not going to successfully destroy the true worship of God. Your story is actually going to help protect the true worship of God. Isn't that cool? That's what God did. So God spends so much time telling us about Antiochus IV because he is the closest thing history has ever seen to what the terrifying final fourth kingdom ruler will be like. And number three, then, which connects right to that, because God's people will often live under rulers who fit a similar profile. Antiochus IV is not just a parallel 
of the one final terrifying ruler, but parallel to many who will be like him along the way. That's why the title of the sermon is Meet One Terrifying Politician, because you're going to meet lots more. Antiochus IV is not just a parallel to one final terrifying ruler, but parallel to many who will be like him along the way. Remember the purpose of the book of Daniel? To guide, comfort, and prepare the people of God as they live under the authority of the world's political powers until Jesus comes again. So as your notes say, God's people must always be prepared to remain faithful to God under the authority of arrogant, successful, deceitful, powerful, and intimidating rulers who do things like this. And this list could be way more than five, but this is five things that are illustrated here in Daniel chapter 8. You will live under rulers who oppose the true God. So verse 25 says that Antiochus would rise up against the prince of princes. He was absolutely opposed to the true God. And this is what rulers will continue to do. Now, they do it in many different ways. Some rulers literally set themselves up as God. Other rulers wouldn't literally say they're God. They would say that they're the next best thing. Or, like Antiochus, you know what that word is that you often hear attached to Antiochus? Antiochus Epiphanes. That's the word he used for himself on these coins that we've found, archaeologists have found. And Epiphanes means manifested or manifestation. God manifested. Antiochus would have said, no, I'm not God. I'm just the manifestation of God on earth. So some rulers do it like that. Some rulers play along with a quasi-Christianity and call themselves Christians because it helps them consolidate and hold to their power, even though there's nothing Christian about them at all. We've got some rulers like that in the world today. They know how to play the Christian card. Other rulers create an official state religion to push out all the other religions. And other rulers create an atheistic state where essentially religion is illegal. So it can happen in many different ways, but God's people must always be ready to live under rulers who, first of all, oppose the true God. Also, be ready to live under rulers who set their sights on faithful worshipers of the true God. It's interesting that verse 9 says that Antiochus grew great toward the south, toward the east, and then toward this one very specific little place, the glorious land, as if he set his sights on the people of God and wanted to head there. And then verse 10 pictures that figuratively, like he wants to reach up into heaven and throw down the heavenly host. These rulers set their sights on faithful worshipers, and usually the reason is because of the faithfulness. The rulers want to be like your God, and they want you to be loyal to them like to a God, and when they find out that your ultimate loyalty is to the true God, that infuriates them. 
Antiochus focused his sights right on the Jewish people precisely because they would not give him their ultimate loyalties. And that made him furious. Be ready. Thirdly, be ready for leaders who will try to break the regular practices of faith. Look with me at verse 11. The middle of verse 11 says that the regular burnt offering was taken away. And the translations are actually um, interpreting that a little bit because the Hebrew simply says something like, he took away the continual or the continuousness. He took away what was regular. He took away what they did continually. Now that's referring first and all, first of all, to the regular daily temple sacrifices. That's why they translate that way. But the point is that Antiochus went about, went after what was the regular routines of their faith. Now it's it's true in our lives that regular routines can become just routines. They can become just thoughtless motions. But it's also true that we build into our lives regular routines to do the most important things. You might make a regular schedule of exercising or cleaning the house or going on a date with your spouse. Or Why do we make those things regularly scheduled? Because they're really important. And if we know that if we don't schedule them in, though they're really important they might get neglected. The tyranny of the urgent takes over and we won't do these really important things. So don't you think Antiochus knew that? In other words, get people to stop their regular spiritual routines and they're likely not to go back, right? Stop exercising and how how easy is it to get restarted? He knew that. Rulers will know that. Try to break the regular practices, the regular routines of faith. Number four, be ready to live under authorities who try to silence the Bible. Verse 12 says, he threw truth to the ground, literally banning the Hebrew Bible. So why do leaders like this want to silence the Bible? Because it confronts bad leaders. It exposes sin. It exposes their lies. It converts new people who come to faith. It strengthens God's people to be faithful. So they've got to silence it. And then finally, though again, so much more could be added to the list, but finally, number five, we be ready to live under authorities who try to violate the purity of the faithful. Antiochus desolated the sanctuary, trampled the sanctuary, defiled the worship of God. But those things were just symbols of what he was trying to do in people's hearts. Remember, he commanded the people to offer pagan sacrifices. He commanded the people to build altars. And we need to remember this. While we're looking at all that persecution, don't forget, he also tempted the people with the pleasures of Greek culture. John Lennox writes that the Jews discovered that Greek culture and lifestyle were very attractive. It made far fewer moral demands It opened up a whole new world of entertainment and sport that had been foreign to them. It was a heady taste of freedom, and Antiochus was giving it to them. So the point is that leaders have more than one way to try to go after your purity. 
They have direct and indirect ways. They have laws and they have seductions. They have threats and they have pleasures. Just look at all they can offer you if you'll play along. And so we need to remember that we have to watch not just for leaders who who try to use force or threat or laws or violence to get you to defile your conscience, but they also try to use more indirect ways, other ways of offering you the world's pleasures and seductions. And uh, I'm going to be really specific about this, whether I should, I don't know, but here goes. Um, Some of our parents recently have talked to me about taking a teenager to the doctor. and, And there's this thing today where doctors tell the parents to leave the room or they take the teen to another room. And so we've got this scenario playing out where teenagers are their doctor is asking them, are you interested in other people of the same sex? Now, the, go- the doctors are doing that because that's what the government wants the doctors to do. That's what they're being told as they, they must do as part of uh, their wellness care. But one of the things that's so heartbreaking about that, many things are, But one of the things that's so angering about that is that, you know what that kind of sounds like? It kind of sounds like a doctor saying to a teenager, wouldn't you like to try this? You see what I'm saying? Governments can say, we're going to force you into evil, and if you don't, I'm going to kill you. Governments can also say, hey, wouldn't you like to try this? Look at these pleasures we have to offer to you. And look at how good your life will be if you just go along with the way everybody else is doing it. So we will have to live under authorities who will try to violate the purity of the faithful. They would get no greater joy than for you to violate your conscience, go against your convictions, and become a person of compromise because they know that if you aren't loyal to God anymore, you're likely to be loyal to them. So as we live in a world with rulers like this, we can be reminded this morning of one very simple question. Am I loyal to God? Whether or not the government is trying to drive you away from your God, are you loyal to your God? Loyal to the daily routines of faith? Loyal to God's word? Loyal to God's ways? To obedience? To holiness? It doesn't necessarily have to take a terrible ruler to push us away from God, does it? We do a pretty good job of just drifting away on our own. Loyalty is is really a very important theme throughout the book of Daniel, right? Chapter 1, Babylon Palace High School, what's the question? You can be loyal to your God or not when you've got all the pleasures of Babylon here. And then you've got the fiery furnace, the statue, the prayer decree, the lion's den, and now here in these visions later in the book, there's always the question, what would it take to get you to turn away from your faithfulness to God. Does that question scare you? Does that intimidate you? Does it make you feel like, oh boy, I cannot do that. I'm I'm dead meat. (laughs) Can I remind you this morning, that's not true. Daniel wasn't dead meat. Even more so, you're not dead meat. (laughs) Because we have so much more than Daniel had. We can look back on these predictive prophecies and see that God's word is true. 
God knows what he's talking about. We can look back and we can see that when God said, this is what empires are going to be like, and this is going to, what kings are going to be like, we can see that the pattern was true. God, God was right, not just about the specifics, but about the pattern that rulers would follow and, and empires would follow. But even more than that, we can look back on the cross, and we can look back on the empty tomb, and we have the new life of Christ within us, and we have the Spirit of God within us. We have Jesus with us, and we have the example of Christ faithful to his Father in the face of hatred and and temptations. And we have the completed Bible in our hands, and we live in the family of God, the spiritual kingdom of God in the church. And so God has richly prepared us to live in faithfulness to him. But let's add a key word to that sentence. God has richly prepared us to live in dependent faithfulness to him. You have all that you need to be faithful to God. But it's not like, okay, got what I need, God. Now I'm going to go be faithful to you. It's more like Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. God, if you don't come with me, I am dead meat. You got to be with me. And so it's dependently walking with God every day. And you have more than enough in Christ to be faithful to him no matter what. No matter what fiery darts come at you, no matter what lies, what deception, what persecution, what temptations, what seduction, God has richly prepared you to live in dependent faithfulness to him under even the most severe pressure. So, much like the temple was rededicated to the Lord in 164 B.C., maybe this complicated chapter of Daniel 8 could lead us this morning to a really simple rededication of ourselves to God. Faithfulness to God is a theme from beginning to end in the book of Daniel, and it's a theme from beginning to end every day of your life. I'm thankful that when I was in high school, I uh, was encouraged by a, a man who taught us about what he called daily direct dedication renewal. And he meant every day you come back to God and you rededicate yourself to faithfulness to him this day dependent faithfulness to him. So it's kind of like, a, it's kind of like a, I don't mean this in any kind of disrespectful or denigrating way. I mean this just practically, devotionally. It's kind of like a daily kanaka, daily rededication of ourselves to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have taken us and you hold us in your hands and we are yours and you are not going to let go of us. And yet, at the same time, we, you call us to be faithful back to you, to be loyal to you, to obey you, to follow you. And so, I pray that these truths from Daniel 8, by your Spirit, would uh, uh, cause to, to rise up in our hearts an eager desire that this day, no matter what, we might be loyal to you, faithful to you, dedicated to you. We pray only because of Jesus. Amen.